Acquisition officials, especially in the Defense Department, worry about why the roster of would-be federal contractors seems to contract every year. Small companies in particular seem to be departing. It could be the ever-expanding list of rules are driving them away. We get perspective from longtime federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And you're combining a couple of ideas here, Larry, in that commercial acquisition is giving way to commercial plus tons of federal rules, and that is what's driving companies that just can't afford the compliance anymore. Tell us more. Tom, I'm here this morning to regretfully announce the obituary for commercial item acquisition in federal government. And while the government used to have a commercial first buying method, which attempted to mirror commercial acquisition practices, the reality today is that the way that the government buys commercial goods and services really bears little or no resemblance to how they're bought in the commercial market. And the result of that is reduced competition to specialized suppliers, higher prices because there are more hoops that contractors providing commercial solutions have to jump through, and Uh, a lack of innovation because truly innovative companies may just sit on the sidelines uh, rather than have to deal with some requirement that they do a robust check of all of their company's telecommunications devices to make sure they pass federal muster. Right. A lot of these rules and requirements have not been baked yet into the federal acquisition regulation, correct? A lot of them haven't, and that's alarming, Tom, because a number of them have. The one that I just referenced, the Section 889 telecommunications. That is. Those are in government contracts under an interim rule that we've been waiting for a final rule now for over two years. Uh, In the meantime, other things are coming right down the pike. The Department of Defense, for example, is expected someday to issue a final rule on CMMC, basically setting standards for how Contractors handle controlled, unclassified information, but also things like greenhouse gases, software attestation over at GSA, and whether and how you have good cybersecurity systems uh, in your network. Right. And I guess sometimes the government maybe doesn't fully understand the costs to businesses of complying with some of these requirements. Right. And they want to, at the same time, Tom, attract new businesses, particularly small businesses. This administration has an initiative to do more business with small disadvantaged businesses. Well, you can be a disadvantaged business of any stripe by having to pay more to comply with the new laundry list of government rules and regulations that impact your contract. You're going to have a very tough time attracting these companies. And as you applied implied in your opening time, you're going to have a tough time keeping some of the companies that have been in this market. It's expensive to comply with new rules. And we see businesses leaving this market every year. I talked to a small business just last week that's been in the government market for over 40 years. They're looking hard at whether or not they can even stay in this market. And the number one reason is the number of new rules and regulations that they have to gear up for, they just don't have the revenue to justify that type of investment. Well, what can companies do? What is the forum if they want to state this to the government? What's the best way to at least tell the government before you give up totally on the market. Well, I think one of the things I'm encouraged by, Tom, is that there were a number of responses recently on the administration's greenhouse gas rule. There was a lot of pushback, apparently, on the rule. 
And that's just one example that proves a larger point. If industry sees new rules and things that make it more difficult for them to do business, they need to speak up. Speak up either individually as part of a larger group of contractors, like an association, They need to get involved in the regulatory process. They also need to let their elected officials know these jobs provide a lot of economic activity in your congressional district. Allowing new rules to go in every other day threatens these jobs, threatens our local economy. It's a message that absolutely needs to be put up and put up consistently. And I'd also recommend coming up with some Uh, recommendations for alternatives. You just don't want to complain about what's wrong. You want to try and come up with an alternative that people maybe can live with. This has worked in the past, Tom, when we've had people in Congress and in executive branch who've been willing to have a true dialogue with industry. I'm not sure if we're in that place today, but I hope so. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. To switch topics here, the Office of Management and Budget has a lot of modernization refresh ideas that are related to the Biden administration's national cybersecurity strategy, which came out just a couple of weeks ago. You're skeptical there, too, that a whole lot of modernization might take place because of that. I think it's a great goal, Tom, the Office of Management and Budget coming out and saying, we're really super serious this time about modernizing IT. Uh, Who couldn't be in favor of that? You know, we have the Technology Modernization Fund that's been around for a while. That's not the only way modernization happens, but it is one way, and it's one that's often touted. Significantly, the same week that OMB came out saying, rah, rah, we're going to modernize IT, the administration only put $200 million in the Technology Modernization Fund budget request for FY24. Uh, On the face of it, that's not a lot of money discreetly set aside for modernization. Put that, too, in with the idea that this is supposed to be a 10-year plan. Look, if you're in industry, and even in government, you know that a 10-year plan often can be superseded by events that come up over that lifespan take more precedence over the original idea to modernize IT. And also that you can modernize IT best when everybody's on the same uh, song page. But that really is never the case or very rarely the case in federal IT. The Office of Management Budget would like agencies to modernize in a certain way. Agencies feel they have a better idea of what their mission-specific needs are. Their laundry list may not match OMB's. So while I think this is a great effort, Tom, we've heard this song before. We've never gotten to the end of the tune. I'm not sure that we're going to get there now. Well, quite a number of the applications and awards from the Technology Modernization Fund. Don't forget there was a non-appropriated or appropriated via non-regular appropriations, I guess we should say, billion dollars from a couple of years ago. Have trouble keeping track of them all, but which is not used up yet. But a great many of those awards did have to do with cybersecurity, and agencies have made progress there. And if that's a big piece of modernizing, oh, I think we're making we're making modernization in steps, maybe not leaps and bounds, Tom. I'm not sure that we need another OMB program to do it, but uh, now we have one. You know, when I wrote about this for my newsletter this week, I put the title down that had something like, I think we've heard this song before. doesn't mean it's a bad song. Uh, It could be a great song. But what it means is it's really not anything new. So 
I think in order for this initiative to be successful, there's going to have to be more than a headline, more than a press release. It's going to have to be a daily effort that OMB works on in coordination with the agencies. And I guess maybe the other interesting question about the TMF is that even at a billion dollars, it's only 1% of what we presume agencies spend across the board on information technology. And if a lot of it is for modernizing, including updating cybersecurity, why can't agencies find 1% from what they're doing on average to do that without the TMF? Well, I think that's a, a good question. But it's a question, I think, Tom, that should not just be asked to CIOs, but should be asked to chief management officers. You know, it's not necessarily only a technological hurdle or a technological issue. Sometimes it's a mission issue, whether or not you've got an agency that has internal mission priorities that the IT has to be tailored to meet, or whether there's some congressional or executive branch policy that agencies have to dedicate part of their budget to meet those requirements. So it's not just a technology issue. If it was, I think you could probably solve it, but it's mandates on where that technology spending has to go sometimes driven by other than technology-based realities. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. Especially those small companies. And we'll post That's this right. interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law 
in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask 
Is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.